Our fifth section of Psalm 119 begins at verse 33, and it's the Hebrew letter He, fifth in the alphabet. Just a sort of a grammatical note, the fifth letter of the Hebrew alphabet is used at the beginning of verbs to make them causative. So the prayers of this section in the original Hebrew are stated such as cause me to learn and cause me to understand and cause me to walk and so forth. So we begin here now at verse 33. Teach me, O Lord, in the way of your statutes, and I shall keep it to the end. Give me understanding, and I shall keep your law. Indeed, I shall observe it with my whole heart. Make me walk in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. I like how this section begins, where he says, Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I shall keep it to the end. The the psalmist here stresses the great desire to keep the way and the word of God. The idea is something like this. God, if you'll only teach me, then I'll persevere and keep it until the end. Now let's face it, friends. Only a God-changed heart can pray this. Left to himself, man is unable to keep the way and the word of God. Left to himself, man just doesn't need new information, such as information from God's word. No, but once the word of God comes to a heart that is redeemed, that is regenerated, that God-changed heart can pray this prayer with great effectiveness. Philippians chapter 2 verse 13 tells us that is God's work in us both to will and to do for his good pleasure. The, the psalmist here is praying as someone who has received the will and now he prays for the doing of it. And we should reckon ourselves to this duty of following God and his word to the end. Friends, if you come to that place of determination, did you see that there in verse 33? Teach me, O Lord, in the way of your statutes, and I shall keep it until something better comes along. And I shall keep it just as long as I know I'm going to heaven, and then I can back off on the accelerator. No, friends, shouldn't we have the same holy determination that the psalmist has here? And I shall keep it to the end. We trust that the psalmist doesn't say this with an undue self-reliance and self-confidence. His confidence is in the Lord. But God has given him a determination that says, to the end. That's how far I'm going to go with this with God. And therefore he cries out, continuing on into verse 34, Give me understanding and I shall observe it with my whole heart. You see, without this understanding, the psalmist could not follow the desires of his transformed heart. Ladies and gentlemen, if you are born again by the Spirit of God, God has put a change in your heart. You're no longer the same person. In the biblical terminology, you're a new creature, a new creation in Jesus Christ. But the new creature in you needs to be taught. The new creature in you needs understanding. And that's why God's word guides us in this way. You see, I want you to notice as well that the psalmist had no doubt that God had given his word to us. His only fear was that he would not understand it or be distracted distracted from it. Yet the psalmist was utterly confident that God had spoken and that it could be understood rightly by the prayerful heart and the prayerful mind. 
Therefore, he prays this in verse 35. Make me walk in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. You see, despite his delight and desire for God's word, he knew that he could not walk in God's path without him God's empowering. We need that, right? We need the power to do the good things that God stirs up our hearts to do. And therefore, he continues on in verse 36, mindful of the problems of material things. He says, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to covetousness. Turn my eyes away from looking at worthless things and revive me in your way. I love these two verses. He begins at verse 36 by crying out to God, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to covetousness. The psalmist rightly understood that covetousness was a threat to walking in God's way. A heart that's inclined to God's word would help him be satisfied with what God provides and not have a covetous heart. He's asking God to turn his heart towards the Bible rather than to be turned after a life of pointless and selfish gain. The Bible tells us how covetousness has ruined very many people. Balaam sold out God's people and his own soul for the sake of covetousness. Ahab murdered for covetousness. David committed adultery and murder because he coveted. Achan stole and brought Israel to defeat by covetousness. Judas stole from his fellow disciples and betrayed Jesus for the sake of covetousness. Gehazi lied for the sake of covetousness. And Ananias lied to the Holy Spirit and to the apostles for the sake of covetousness. Oh, this is a real danger in our Christian lives. And so we ask God, no, Lord, turn me away from these covetous things. As he says here in verse 36, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to covetousness. He recognized that a heart that was so in love and so in tune with God's word would have a protection against covetousness. But then along the same thought, he continues on in verse 37, turn away my eyes from looking at worthless things. You see, the psalmist rightly understood that some things, comparatively speaking, are worthless things. They are of no value for eternity and of little value for the present age. He prayed that God would empower him and enable him to turn away his eyes and his attention from such worthless things. It's sobering to think about, isn't it, friends? Sobering and convicting. How many lives are wasted because people find themselves unable or unwilling to turn away their eyes from worthless things? The modern world, with all of its media and all of its entertainment technology, brings before us an endless river. It's like a Niagara Falls of worthless things to occupy not only our eyes and not only our time. That would be bad enough. But the worthless things of this world so often occupy our hearts and our minds. Some things are clearly worthless. And other things are thought by some to be worthy, but they're, in fact, they are worthless. They're worthless because they do no good. They're worthless because they do not last. They're worthless because they do not help anyone else. 
They're worthless because they build no faith, no hope, no love. They're worthless because they distract from the things that are truly worthy. They're worthless because they have nothing to do with Jesus. Now the psalmist understood what I hope you understand and I understand, that our hearts have a perverse attraction to worthless things. And so we pray for this natural tendency to be counteracted. And he prayed that God would work on his eyes. Lord, turn away my eyes from worthless things. The eyes are so powerful that the psalmist had to pray and pray for a power outside of himself to turn his eyes from worthless things. Friends, what's the problem? Does the psalmist have no eyelids that he could just close his eyes to worthless things? Does he have no muscles in his neck to where he could not just turn away his eyes? But listen, we can't criticize the psalmist, right? Because I have eyelids, I have muscles in my neck, and yet nevertheless, I find myself looking at worthless things and paying attention to things that occupy my time that should have no place in my life. We can sympathize with this prayer. The eyes are so small, yet they lead the whole person and often lead to destruction because the eyes lead the heart and lead the mind and can lead the whole person. I like what the old Puritan commentator John Trapp said about this. He said that he prayed this, lest looking cause liking and lusting. And that's the danger, is it not? We set our eyes on worthless things. And sometimes we set our eyes on worthless things on the computer, right? Just, just, I'm not even talking about wicked or evil things, right? I'm not even talking about things that are obviously wicked and evil. They're just worthless. And we can spend hours of worthless time, right? We can spend hours of worthless time in front of a television, in front of a computer screen, in front of this or that or the other thing. It's just vain, vain, worthless things. Now listen, he didn't gouge out his own eyes, nor did he ask God to do it. Instead, he wanted to look at a different way, a better way. And the best way to look away from sin and worthless things is to look at something else. Look at what he says there in verse 37. Turn away my eyes from looking at worthless things. Well, what do they look over to when the eyes are turned away? We presume that they're looking upon the great things of God and his word. Maybe for some of us, we need to take such small steps in the right direction that the first step for us would just be this, to say, okay, I will chart my time these next few days and I will spend at least as much time looking at valuable things as I do at worthless things. Wouldn't that be a change in our lives? So he says, verse 37, turn away my eyes from looking at worthless things and revive me in your way. This is another beautiful prayer for revival. This is a prayer to be made alive in the way or in the path of God. God, I want to walk in your way. I want to walk in your path and I want to do so with a revived heart. He he prayed for deadness in one direction, right? Lord, here's the direction of worthless things. I want deadness in this direction, but Lord, over here in the direction of life, of spiritual good things, in that way, Lord, make me alive. And that's a beautiful thing, to be dead in the right places and to be alive in the right places. In verse 38, he expands on this longing. 
He says, establish your word to your servant who is devoted to fearing you. Turn away my reproach, which I dread, for your judgments are good. Behold, I long for your precepts. Revive me in your righteousness. Now listen, this is not a prayer to God for him to change his word in some way. No, he says, establish your word. The word of the Lord is established forever. No, Lord, change my heart and my mind so that your word is established in me. And turn away my reproach, which I dread, for your judgments are good. Lord, I declare the goodness of your judgment, but turn away my disgrace. You are a merciful God, so come and do that. Friends, there is some reproach. And again, reproach can simply be thought of as disgrace. There is some disgrace that we will face as followers of Jesus. Maybe that would be a great t-shirt to make up, right? Disgraced for Jesus' sake. Reproach sounds so much more holy, doesn't it? But that's just what it means. To be reproached is to be held, at least by some people, in disgrace. Paul suffered this kind of disgracement. And indeed, Paul says in a very powerful passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 that he learned to rejoice in reproaches. He learned to rejoice in it when other people thought him disgraced for his love of Jesus and his preaching of the cross. This kind of reproach we expect, we receive it as followers of Jesus. So he says, turn away my reproach. And I love the way the psalmist says this in verse uh, 39. He says, which I dread. Isn't that beautiful? Look, I, I dread this, God. I don't like it when I'm held to be in disgrace by other people for following you. I want to hold up under it bravely and manfully. I don't enjoy it, but Lord, I will do it for your sake. I dread this, but I will cling to you and your word as he says, for your judgments are good. Behold, I long, verse 40, for your precepts revive me in your righteousness. Again, the psalmist prays for revival and the prayer comes from a heart that loves God's word asking to be made alive in the righteousness of God friends that should be our prayer as well I think verse 40 is a beautiful prayer for us to conclude the teaching part of the evening on where he says behold I long for your precepts secondly revive me in your righteousness now friends God's plan is not to revive you in your own righteousness. Your own righteousness is like filthy rags before him. It doesn't impress God at all. But his righteousness, his righteousness that is given to you because of what Jesus did on the cross, where he took your sin, and we talk a lot about that and we should, But you know what the other part of the transaction is? He took your sin, but what did he give you of his? His righteousness. And so when he says right there in verse 40, revive me in your righteousness, you can pray this on this side of the cross with far more clarity, with far more understanding, because you've received such a wonderful revelation of the righteousness. It's given to you justly because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And that's why it's wonderful to consider that that, that as we continue on now in our time of worship, we've got tables of communion set up here right up front. 
Matter of fact, I think that's a beautiful prayer for you to pray as you receive communion tonight. Take that piece of bread, dip it in the cup, and before you take it in your mouth, say, Lord, revive me in your righteousness. Not your righteousness, your personal righteousness. No, no, filthy rags, that stuff. But in your righteousness. Lord, I receive, I take within myself your righteousness. And out of that, may we have a life that turns away from worthless things, that sets our eyes on the things that should be set upon, but it's all centered around his righteousness given to us. Father in heaven, that is our prayer. We love you. And Lord, one of the things we love about an evening like this is it gives us the opportunity to turn away our eyes from worthless things and to give our soul at least some time of considered meditation upon the deep things of you and your word. Thank you for this, Lord. And right now, Lord, as we come and open up the tables of communion, I pray, God, that you would give people a greater apprehension than ever before That as they receive what Jesus did on the cross for them, they are receiving the gift of your righteousness, Lord God. Do that work in us, Lord. Then prompt us on to run the glorious race for you, turning our eyes away from worthless things and putting them upon the one who is so worthy and who has revealed himself to us through your word. We thank you for it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.